It was the school that my kids went to. They were long gone by the time we got there. But it was a base. Not only did I teach in the Bible department, but we traveled into Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria, to Luxembourg, France, Germany, Holland, Scotland, England and Ireland on a number of seminars, local church ministries, as well as teaching in schools. I'm currently the visiting professor of theology at the Biblical Academy Logos in Sofia, Bulgaria, and we'll be going there every summer. looking forward to leaving one week after school closes to be there for three weeks, as well as in other parts of Europe. In fact, that was one of the agreements that we had, that we'd be allowed to go back to Europe every summer. We miss Europe. My wife and I lived in the corner of the southwestern corner of Germany, on the border with Switzerland and France. We speak French and German, enough to be able to get around. And so we miss not hearing those languages around us. We must not be able to nip down to Basel for a cup of tea on Saturday afternoon. And we are trying to get used to the high-speed freeways of California. There's quite a difference, by the way, in going 16 miles on a three- to five-lane crowded freeway in the morning as opposed to a nice one-kilometer stroll through a German village to school. I'm glad to be here, though. The Lord obviously changed our plans. Worship. It's a word that evokes in your mind a kaleidoscope of different images. Perhaps for some of you a series of abstract definitions tumble through your mind. Maybe you think automatically of soaring columns, stained glass windows, of cathedrals, of multicolored flecks of light dancing on the back of kneeling worshippers whose faces can only be seen in the candlelight before they scurry off to life's routine, leaving the candle, reflecting their prayer. Or maybe you have something far more simpler, just a time when we get together to sing, to have fellowship, to praise the Lord, study the word. Books, articles, songs have all been written and composed to stir men to worship. To think about a spirit of worship, to consider the subject of devotion, commitment to the Lord. And even as a result of reading those books and singing those songs, however, we often consider worship to be something that is just assigned to a particular time slot of the week. It's a scheduled event. And in the surge and swirl of our studies and our work and other responsibilities, in the juggling of our cluttered schedules, and for most of us they are quite cluttered, in the balancing of competing priorities, all of which legitimately clamor for attention, we so often feel that there are just one or two things happening. One. We're either on a monotonous treadmill of routine, trudging along wearily, doing our work. Or we are being tossed around unceremoniously in the tumble dryer of unexpected circumstances and pressures. And see, in the midst of that surge and swirl and juggling and balancing, worship just has to somehow find its own level, its own peak. Devotion, well... When I can fit it in, I'll express it somehow. But it just will have to find its own place. Too much is on the go. I want you to turn with me to a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament this morning that picks up a little bit on the theme of your chapter for the week. 
I want to approach it from a different perspective altogether. I want you to look with me at two halves of a timeless demonstration of life exhibiting a spirit of worship or of devotion to God. So turn with me please to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Timeless demonstration of life exhibiting spirit of worship or of devotion and commitment to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. I said two halves. Because I think that the little word four at the beginning of verse four is a hinge that divides the material equally into two parts. The one providing the reason, the first part providing the challenge. I want you to take a look with me at verses one through three and here we are brought face to face with a challenging invitation for our lives to display devotion. Challenging invitation for our lives to display devotion. I'm sure your ear caught and your eye also saw the repetitive refrain in the opening verse and a half. Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. Poetic repetition, I think, focuses on the character of our devotion for it draws attention to the phrases that follow that repetitive refrain. Singing was, of course, a mark of those that were expressing their feelings and their thoughts. You often find it associated not only with worship but with an updating of the testimony of the knowledge of God on the part of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and on the part of individuals. It was how they expressed what was taking place in their heart and what they wanted to display, what they wanted to say because it was real to them. Now I want to consider these phrases that follow and bring out something of an application to ourselves today from this poetic repetition. Your devotion is to be characterized by a fresh quality. Psalmist calls this a new song. It appears often in a context of praise, of the greatness of God's works, and even of answered prayer in the book of the Psalms. But it was used to suggest something that was fresh, a fresh quality about it, something new, or if I may use the word, an updating of testimony. In other words, the experience of the believer with God is an ongoing one. It's not something to which the adjective static or stagnant can be applied and associated. It's vital. It's fresh. It's alive. It's good. It's real. When a person's knowledge of God increases, as it did for the nation of Israel and individuals throughout biblical history, when that knowledge of God increases, when that relationship is challenged and strengthened, when that devotion is deepened, then there's a freshness of testimony. There's a desire to give expression to the feelings and thoughts of the heart to say something about the reality of that relationship. 
For that is real to the individual who worships. But worship is not something that just belongs in an assigned time slot. As good as those moments of fellowship are, and we have to have them to assemble ourselves together for the sake of praise and worship and teaching and study and so on. But it's the spirit of worship that should pervade and permeate the being of a child of God. So that there is a willingness to update his testimony and to give expression to the fact that his experience with God is fresh and his devotion real, not a facade. You may make the proposition, God exists, and God is real. You may assert that intellectually. But I submit to you this morning that if the relationship that should be seen behind that proposition is not fresh and real, there will be no updating of a testimony of God's working in your life. Second, this testimony of devotion should be characterized by a corporate desire. The psalmist expresses it this way, all the earth. I know that repeatedly throughout the psalms, there's a cry for all individuals on the earth to give voice to their praise to God. Because that's a legitimate cry and an appeal that should be made. We are not to see ourselves as standing alone in the presence of God worshipping Him, but having all those others with whom we normally associate doing the same thing. But our family and our workmates and our friends and our neighbors and our relatives and others that God brings across our path, we want them to be standing there with us in the presence of God in eternity, praising Him, if not now, right away. There should be something of this corporate desire in the heart of everybody who wants to reach out for the Lord. A heartfelt desire that is expressed. I want you to join me giving praise to God and you need to do that by first coming through Christ. If I may put it this way. Worship always leads to mission. The natural outworking of one who is devoted to God devoted to his Lord, is outreach. The outworking of commitment and devotion is outreach. So you may learn all of the techniques you wish. You may go through to all the workshops and evangelism that you want to. You may pick up the little tricks of how to ask questions of how to take a statement that gives you an opening and seize the opportunity and pry open the discussion of the things of God and the Bible. But if you are not devoted to the God you serve and the Christ you proclaim, you will not even notice those opportunities. And there will be no desire that others join you in worshiping Christ. Fresh testimony seizes the opportunity to speak of Christ because the relationship is so real and a desire is now arisen. Join me in eternity. The poetic repetition is followed by what I'm going to call for now an economy of expression that focuses on the theme of our devotion. The poetic repetition focused on the character of it, fresh quality, corporate desire, 
Let me back up. I've left one out here. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, a particular motif. Should be characterized by this particular note. Bless his name. You know, when God is the subject of the verb to bless, man is the object. You understand what that means? Then somehow you'll always see in the context of the statement when God is carrying out a blessing action that the object, man, is enriched, either physically or spiritually. Something happens whereby that person changes and is enriched by the action of God. Now when you reverse that, and you make man the subject of the verb to bless, and you make God the object, you can't reverse that idea of enrichment. How is it possible for you and I as finite beings to enrich God? It's not possible. But perhaps there's a sense in which it can be seen from this perspective. That our commitment and our devotion should cause us to want to acknowledge God for all He is and all that He does. And to ascribe honor to Him and all that is due to Him, the glory that is due to His name, and to have others acknowledge with us, God is real, God is great, God is good, God saves. And the rest of the attributes of God. Psalm 103 shows why we ought to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. That's the reason why God should be acknowledged for all he is in his character and his person, why praise should be given to him, why he should be enriched in the sense of our praise, because he has given great benefits. Don't forget them. Here he deals with them. Who pardons all our iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. A desire that this particular motif be in your testimony. That God be acknowledged for all he is. A redeemer. And a king. If you tell me you live for the Lord, I want to see your talk for the Lord. If you tell me you're committed to the Lord, I want to hear your praise of the Lord. I want to see your life stirred by the desire that in all you do, in all you say, in all of your vocations and whatever they may be, both now and in the future, that God will receive the honor that is due to him by you and by others you'll touch. Then we come to the economy of expression that focuses on the theme of our devotion. Proclaim good tidings. Tell of his glory, his wonderful deeds. Short, short to the point. And yet this stands behind this concise expression all the data of Scripture. Proclaim it. You to be a herald of God's deliverance. Clearly, convincingly, 
Like the herald of old, proclaim the truth of a God who saves. Well, that's your message. Our God saves. What took place in history, in the material, physical world, can take place as well in the spiritual world with eternal consequences. See, when the Jewish Hebrew listener heard this psalm, or when he recited its words and he picked up this idea of salvation, this word for deliverance, he recalled not only a spiritual deliverance, but he said perhaps primarily at first, of rescue from enemy bondage and oppression, it was God who saved. Of deliverance from the grip of famine and other economic problems, it was God who brought blessing. Of being brought out from under all assorted adversities because of an action of a sovereign God working in the life of the nation and the individual. And that's what he thought of. But he also recalled from the pages of his Old Testament, and we have the benefit of the New Testament to flesh it out considerably, that there is a deliverance from bondage to sin. There is deliverance from the domain of darkness and estrangement before God. That we have, by the gracious sovereign action of God, been brought out to stand in a right relationship with Him here and now, and for eternity. And that's good news. It's the good news of a God who saves. And would you please notice the psalmist makes abundantly clear that that message is applicable to every day, not just to some particular moment. From day to day, every hour is right for proclaiming the good news. Now, I don't mean that that's all you do all the time everywhere and that when you go to study math, you sit in class and you talk about the gospel message. But what I mean is that when every moment that presents itself to present the gospel, you do so gladly because you know it's good news that you've benefited from. Be a herald of God's deliverance. That means you know your message. You know its content. You can turn to the appropriate passages of Scripture and give a testimony of its reality to you. You are to be also one who narrates the great workings of God. So you to proclaim these good tidings, this good news, you ought to evangelize, therefore, speaking of God's salvation, at every moment that it allows to do so. And you ought to be a storyteller of the great workings of God. Tell of His glory, His wonderful deed. Spell out the details. I wonder how many of you can do that. Can you be like a storyteller of old who holds your audience captive because of his abilities to unfold the story? He doesn't need multimedia techniques, so use those if you can, by all means. 
But are you so caught up in your in the story that you can tell that you can hold the person enraptured with your testimony of the grace of God? Were they to give you the attention you should have? But they all need to hear. Is that message so meaningful to you that you can take the words of Scripture and point to what God has unfolded of Himself, revealed of Himself and what He has done in those critical moments of history? Do you know them? They've been recorded for the retelling. They've been written down so that you can study them and begin to speak of the greatness of this God. The wonder of His grace. The marvel of His plan of redemption. Do you know it? Do you know the details like the storyteller? Or is it something so disjointed and floating out there that you can't really put it cohesively together? All need to hear of every nation, of every people, of every class, of every ethnic identity. And Israel needed to hear that clearly in the Psalms because they got to the point as they did so often in their history when they conceived of themselves as the only ones that needed to hear about God. What they needed to know was that message must go out to others too. Speak of all that exalts him. Tell of his glory. What makes him impressive in his being and his majesty. Tell of who he is. What he does. Ascribe to him what is due to him. I submit to you again. Your life is not one of devotion to God. You won't tell of him. You don't catch the significance of the greatness of his being. You haven't understood the worth of the good news. And if you do any evangelism or outreach, it's done under compulsion. You've got to do so many hours of this this week and uh, I'm going to do it and get it under my belt and get my satisfactory grade and that's all over with though. It's required of my involvement in the church, and that's all. And evangelism done under compulsion is no good. Outreach done willingly from a heart that worships God is good. That's the first three verses, the first half of this timeless demonstration. When you were brought face to face with a challenging invitation for your life to display your devotion, the character of your testimony, and in the theme of your testimony, our God saves, our God works, our God has a plan for all of history and, hey, say, you can be part of his plan for eternity. But you know, it's all very well to deliver a command or a challenge. And we should obey anyway. When a command is delivered by the Lord, we should respond. But God is gracious enough here in verses 4, 5, and 6, I think, to present us with a compelling reason why we should so live. 
why there should be such devotion. A compelling reason. Here he is. For great is the Lord. Because of the incomparable status of our God, that's why you need to talk about him. In terms of power, utterly incomparable. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Sounds like just a formula. But that formulaic expression I think is just is more than just you know sort of a casual word, great. Of course we use the word great many times, at least it was a fad years ago. I know at Black Forest Academy for a period of time it was one of those words that sort of becomes part of the vocabulary. Everything was great, great, great. You know, it doesn't matter what happened, it was great. Sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, but everything was great. And great dropped in all over the place as punctuation marks in a sentence. But a formulaic expression like this has a lot of content to it. It's a giant scoop shovel, if you want to picture it in your mind. When you hear great is the Lord, what you should see is that giant shovel digging down into the rich ore of biblical treasure and bringing it out, burning over with everything that you can possibly know and talk about that refers to your God. Who he is, what he does, what he says. When will you be with him? It will help you to realize, as you put behind that little phrase, biblical data, that our God is exalted above the world of men, transcendent and sovereign, distinct from his creation, maker and sustainer of all. And yet it will also help you realize that that great transcendent God is personally and vitally involved in the world of men is immanent as well as transcendent. It will help you to appreciate, perhaps even know, that this Lord is gracious and redeeming, full of mercy and compassion. That is eternal, infinite, all-knowing, and Almighty. And He holds us in His hand. We do not hold Him in ours. In a J.I. Packer, when he wrote his modern classic, Knowing God, which has probably proved to be up to now his magnum opus, the best book that he wrote and probably will ever write. He said, modern man has great thoughts of man, small thoughts of God. I think as we read the scriptures, we ought to be very different from modern man. That doesn't mean we become ancient man. I think we become the right type of man, speaking generically, man and woman together. Let's be those who display what is the true perspective right here. Let's have small thoughts of man. How can we not recognize our limitations and our weaknesses and our frailties and our sinfulness? And our finiteness. 
And let's have great thoughts of God. How can we not acknowledge His unlimitedness, His eternality, His greatness, His perfection in His being, His fullness of holiness. And I submit to you again, that if you don't get something in your heart of a sense of the greatness of your God, you will not reach out to your fellow man. Why should you? You ought to be able to say, He's my maker, my redeemer, my friend, my God, and I will have no other. I think the marvelous thing about Scripture is this, as it deals with the character of God, is that in all the extensive treatment that it gives to His compassion and His mercy and His gentleness and His tenderness, and that's a repeated refrain so often in the Psalms and in the poetry, the Bible never, never, ever loses sight of His greatness. And his incomparability. He's personal, but he's great. It's a greatness, my friend, of the one who made everything from nothing. It's a greatness that sustains both realms of existence, heaven and earth, and both modes of existence, visible and invisible. It's a greatness that said, Come unto me. I will dwell with you, you with me. It's a greatness that said, I've done all that is necessary so that I can be your God and you can be mine. Maybe this is reflected well in the book of Colossians chapter 1. When Paul said, we give thanks to the Father, why? Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light who delivered us from the domain of darkness and transplanted us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It's a greatness of a God in mercy and grace who did everything that was necessary to put you in the right place before him. How can you not speak about him? David declared, you are great, O God. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. In terms of power, utterly incomparable, but notice the subtle play here that occurs in verse 5, for in terms of other deities, totally incomparable. Is he the only Lord? Of course he is. If he's the only Lord and the only Savior, my friend, that message needs to get out, for there is no other God through whom men may be redeemed. Notwithstanding the philosophers of today and men like John Hicks out of Cambridge, expressing very clearly that there is an inclusivicity, not an exclusivicity to the gospel, that it includes all gods and all religions and all types of redeemers and saviors. We need to be very clear on one thing. There is only one God and there is only one Savior and there is only one message of salvation and it's this one that occurs in the 66 books of our Bible. He's to be feared above all gods. If he's the only one, he's the only one to whom reverence will always due. 
And so despite all the pagans' zealous worship of their idols, they were actually bowing down before nothings. It's very interesting to me that the word for idol in the Old Testament can be translated non-entity. If you have a Bible with a marginal cross-reference, it probably tells you that. For all the gods of the peoples are nothings, are good for nothings. They can't do anything. It should remind you of the scorn of the psalmist and the prophet. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Eyes, but they cannot see. Nose, but cannot smell. Mouth, but cannot speak. Good for nothing. In fact, the, the, the prophet spoke very clearly about this. He says, how foolish can you be, O pagan? You go out there into the fields or into the forest and you chop down a tree and you cut it in half. And half the wood you use to cook your meal and the other half you shape with the tool. And you dress it with gold and silver and put jewels in it and then you fall down before it and call it your God. How foolish. It's nothing. And catch something of the subtle play here of sarcasm. See if you can get it. For all the gods of the peoples are nothings, but the Lord made the heavens. There's a conciseness of poetry right here that requires you to fill out the expression. For when a Jew heard not only that word for idol which he knew meant nothing, and then heard the statement, the Lord made the heavens, what would automatically come to his mind? From what did he make the heavens? Tell me. Nothing. You worship nothings. My God made everything you see, including the material out of which you made the idol from nothing. He is. The heavens and earth are. And your idols are not. And that's a great God whose message needs to be proclaimed. I think the psalmist put his finger on the throbbing pulse of pagan life. Which was this. Fear of the gods. Fear of idols. There are idols everywhere, you know. One in the bedroom. One in the living room. One in the kitchen. One in the field. One on the dashboard of the chariot. Wherever. Idols. You know, they didn't sing Old MacDonald had a farm back then. You know what you could have sang? Old Mac Pagan had his temple. Here an idol, there an idol, everywhere another idol. It was a throbbing pulse of their lives. The fear of their gods. What will they do next? Unpredictable, capricious. Give them attention so that they may give us the attention and fill our favors. Now listen. I think here's the enthralling explanation for you and I. What's the throbbing pulse of your life? If I was able to come and take the pulse of how you live, where would I find? God and Christ? Or you? Will I discover that you live and you work in such a way that it's obvious that it's for Him you work? It's Him you serve? That it's to him you sing your songs of praise and you do it gladly. It's with him you commune in prayer. It's with his people you have fellowship. It's before him you stand in reverent awe. And it's because of him 
that you want others to know about Him and stand there with Him. And let me bring it to a close in these words that I think defy description in the English language beyond what they've already said. Not only because of the incomparable status of our Lord, but there's a compelling reason because of the incomparable magnificence of God, splendor and majesty, strength and beauty are before Him. How many of you visited castles and palaces in Europe? Had the pleasure of doing that. Remember how ornate they were? If you've ever been to Neuschwanstein, southern Germany, the fairy castle, the, the Disneyland castle, I guess they call it sometimes, which is still in pristine condition because the guy that built it died 70 days after it was completed, Mad King Ludwig. Incredible. Velvet drapes, beautiful tapestries, marvelously carved wood, gold and silver and marble. And you walk out and you say, did he live like that? How could he put up with all the overwhelming ostentatiousness of this place? Splendor, majesty, beauty, glory of his palace. Reminds us of the days of royalty. That's what was normally associated with them. Let me tell you, whatever might be the splendor and glory of modern buildings and ancient buildings, and even of Solomon's temple and palace, there's nothing in comparison to the wonder and the glory and the beauty and the majesty of being in the presence of God in the eternal temple in the eternal heavens. The psalmist said, on your glorious splendor, the glorious splendor of your majesty, I'll meditate. You are very great, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. You probably know that song very well. I'm sure it comes to mind. Modern song, Majesty. Worship His Majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty, kingdom, authority flow from His throne unto His own, His anthem raise. So exalt, lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come glorify Christ Jesus the King. Majesty, worship His Majesty. Jesus who died now glorified, King of all kings. You waiting to be in the presence of a magnificent God? I hope so. Oh, I know there's a call of a vocation. There's a preparation for life's path that God has laid out for you, whatever it may be, from engineer to pastor to computer specialist to nurse, etc. All of good quality before God. I know there's the thrill of living your life in the future. To do it for the glory of God, but are you waiting and longing and desiring to be in the presence of a God who is magnificent in His majesty? Be brought face to face with the challenging invitation that your life ought to display the devotion you say you have to your God. 
be presented this morning with a compelling reason why your life should be like that. Because God is so incomparable and the wonder of it is that you have a relationship with Him. Worship automatically leads to mission. An outworking of devotion is outreach. So let me repeat. Despite all the seminars you can attend on evangelism, all the techniques you can learn, all the types of questions you can ask, the leading statements you can make, I submit to you this morning, if you are not totally devoted to your Lord and Savior in a fresh, vital, real way that comes from worship and devotion, you will not reach out. Stand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is our privilege and our delight to call you our Father. We do so in humility, for we recognize only too clearly when we bow in prayer like this. We would not be able to do this if it wasn't for your sovereign grace working in our lives. And we are glad this morning, Lord, that we are part of a eternal program and plan from which we can never be unplugged. Thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that as we go out into our daily world and we get caught up in all of its activities and those things that demand our attention and we cannot really avoid that attention. We know you understand that. We've got responsibilities to fulfill. And you've put us in the context of those. Lord, I pray that you'll help us all to seize every moment to display our devotion to you. To reach out to, to workmates, to friends, to family, to neighbors. Because we don't want to worship you alone. We want to worship you with others. Work through us then, through our testimony we pray. Give us a great sense of your greatness your majesty today and the great worth of your good news. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess you are dismissed.